0: Uh, so this morning, we have an opportunity to hear from our brother, uh, Jeff Lassine, who is the pastor at Selwood Church, formerly Selwood Baptist Church. <laughs> Jeff, uh, Jeff received his primary uh, ministry training from me, and he received his secondary training from Bethlehem Seminary and John Piper. My first introduction to Jeff Lassine was in the courtyard uh, at Multnomah before classes started. He was wearing a red REI jacket that he still has, and um, his very first moment that he introduced himself to me, he made sure it was clear that he was just at Multnomah for the languages. He's like, hey, I'm just here for the languages, just here for the languages, whatever that means. (laughs) Uh, Jeff is one of my best friends in the whole world. Uh, If he's on the short list. If I have a question about pastoral ministry, uh, if I was in a crisis, he's on the short list of people that I'd want to be there. And I can say that he's responsible, probably probably the first influence on my life to have a large family. And here's why. Because at my first year at Multnomah, we, we, we knew that God had given us a vision for a, long, a large family. And so I was just asking, I asked Jeff advice. I said, Jeff, how do you know how many kids you're supposed to have? And he he took me, took me by underneath his arm and he said, Matthew, the Bible says that children are a blessing, right? And I said, right. And he said, so what if there was a chain and every time you pulled that chain, a million dollars fell out of heaven? I was like, well, that'd be a pretty cool chain. He's like, that would be a blessing, wouldn't it? He's like, wouldn't you be a fool if you rigged it so that you could pull the chain and a million dollars didn't fall out of heaven? And I said, yeah. And he said, there you go. (laughs) Jeff Lestine.
1: I don't know if I remember all those stories exactly the same way, but it's good to be with you all. Um, it is always a privilege to be here with you and sharing God's Word with you. And um, without anything further, though, I want to get right into uh, God's Word. And we will we will uh, have some, uh, uh, after reading God's Word, I will say a few words of introduction of just thank you from the church. But will you stand uh, with me uh, as I read to you from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. This is God's word. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak. To the people of Israel. This is God's word. Please be seated. Let's ask for a blessing from God that He would illumine His word to us, that He would make Himself known to us in His word. Lord, we do ask for grace. Lord, we don't want just knowledge added to us this morning. We don't want um, just our understanding uh, to grow, though we want those things. More than anything, we want you. We want more of you this morning. And we know, we believe that you grant us your very being, your very self in your word. You don't just give us knowledge or doctrine or theology, but you give us Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would behold you with the eyes of our hearts. Lord, that we would see more of you. That as we peer through the the glass dimly, that we would see a little bit more clearly And that our lives would be forever changed and you would be honored as you conquer us by your living and abiding word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I do um, first want to bring you a message of sincere gratitude and thanks from Selwood Church along with its elders and deacons. Thank you for your continued investment in the ministry of our church. God has been blessing the work at Selwood in a number of ways, and uh, we can't measure the effectiveness of a church in numbers. We can't measure the effectiveness of a church and, and how big the budget is or how many people are attending. And so I often like to ask pastors about their churches in terms of health and spiritual growth rather than numbers. And in those regards, I believe our church is prospering. The men and women of Selwood Church are growing in their love for God, their hunger for his word, their treasuring of the gospel, and their obedience to Christ in all things. And that brings me encouragement. But I would be remiss if I did not also add that God has had us in a season of unusual encouragement, numerically speaking as well. Uh, at, At the members meeting last week, we initiated 16 new covenant members to the church, um, and received, yeah, thanks be to God, and received uh, a, a really encouraging financial report just blowing away all, all expectations of what we, what we thought we were going to do as far as this last year financially. Um, and so we are thankful to God for that. Uh, and I want to tell you that these things uh, are possible, that, that God has done this through your work, through your partnership, through your giving and invest, the investment of your pastors And um, the early help we received from Adam and Megan Triplett, and you're sending them to us and their investment in the work. Um, So thank you on behalf of Selwood Church for your continued partnership uh, in this good and wonderful work. Now that's enough about us. Now about you, uh, we've been just keeping an eye on all the good and wonderful things that God has been doing among the gathering church. And it's been incredible to watch. This is an exciting time for your church. Congratulations, congratulations on the recent church merger. Praise God for that. I see God's hand all over that. Congratulations on the remodel at the new facility. It is looking incredible. Uh, just, I'm so encouraged as I, as I keep an eye on that. And I'm eager to see it finished, as I know you are eager to see it finished too. Um, what a strategic location God has given you. There. I mean, for a strong gospel church to be in that location, praise God for that. Um, God has blessed you and He's given you much. He really is pouring out His blessings upon your church, and I really hope that all of you see that. I hope you see how much God is blessing the gathering church. I hope you feel immensely loved by God in Christ. I hope you are aware of the tremendous favor you are being shown by God in your ministry and mission to glorify Jesus on earth. Because we see it. We see it at Selwood Church. Other neighboring churches see it. Uh, The community sees it among you, and it is really encouraging. Uh, And in the midst of you being the recipient of such wonderful blessings at such a critical time of transition as a church, I want to ask you a question of critical importance. And I know this is a massive, really big picture question, but I want to ask it to you. Here it is. What kind of church does the gathering church want to be in coming years? Exactly what kind of church does the gathering church want to be in coming years? And I'll get a little bit more specific, specifically in, regarding, in regards to missions and discipleship, evangelism and discipleship, what kind of church do you want to be? Let me give you a few options. Is your aim as a church to help believers grow in holiness and obedience to him? Or is your aim to reach the lost? Now, you have to sort of choose one or other, don't you? No, I know a lot of you are saying, oh, come on, I know you're setting us up here. We want to do both, right? We're a both and church. We want to reach the lost and we want to see others grow in Christ. Of course, that's true. All of us want to say we aren't going to choose one or the other. We're a both and church. We seek out the lost and build believers up in their faith. That's a good answer. But as far as what you're really going to do well, what you're really going to put the focus on. We all know that there are churches that specialize in one or the other. When it really, we all know the right answers. We want to be a both and church. But we, all, we also know that you can't give all of your energy to both. You have a limited amount of resources. You have a limited amount of energy. We all know that in practice, there are churches who are better at bringing in the unchurched bringing those on the fringes, seeking out new converts, initiating the uninitiated. In these churches, there are frequent adult baptisms of new Christians and not mostly children of converts that are being baptized. And then there are churches who are better at teaching and instruction and discipleship and helping believers grow in obedience to Christ in all of life. There there are just churches that are better at one than the other, and God does different things amongst different churches. You see, you can do discipleship really well, providing good Bible studies and small groups and proclaiming uh, and programming and fellowship times and prayer times intended to help believers grow in fervent affection and obedience to Christ. You can seek to grow in purity and holiness as a church, being faithful in the practice of church discipline, striving to advance in your corporate and individual conformity to christ in all things or you can care about your neighbor i know i'm making up a huge dichotomy that's only partially true you can but you can you can care about the lost and and the unchurched and, and the cause of world missions aiming not so much at the edification of the already initiated but you can aim more at the salvation of lost souls who have yet to be introduced to christ And I just want us to realize that this is a struggle that all churches deal with, that how much do we pour into discipleship and how much do we pour into evangelism? Can we do both with excellence? I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'm guessing that some of you with a strong missional orientation might even be a little concerned that with moving to a full-time facility, a beautiful church building that the balance on the scales will tilt further toward teaching and discipleship and away from mission. Instead of being a decentralized church plant that meets in a school, scattered and immersed in the community, perhaps you fear that you might become a holy huddle of sorts, disconnected from effective missions and evangelism as fully immersed Christians on mission. And probably all of us have this fear to one degree or another. We've seen churches that have turned inward on themselves and become weird, losing all evangelistic fervor, it seems. And so the missional movement then counteracts this tendency by reminding us that the church exists, exists not for itself, but for the world. One famous megachurch pastor unashamedly actually confessed not too long ago, that his church wasn't for Christians. It was for lost people. He said, and this is, I quote, if you know Jesus, I'm sorry to break it to you, this church is not for you. (laughs) We exist not to give you Bible studies so you can stuff your face with the Bible, but we exist for the lost. We are a church for the unchurched. What kind of church will you be? And why? And how will you pursue that vision? It's an important question. And it relates not only to the church corporate, but it also relates to how each of us chooses to live our lives individually. I by no means intend to answer that question for you. I'm a guest preacher from another church, and we're constantly asking ourselves that very question, looking to God's word to inform our every step. But in this series on missions that you are in, I hope to add to the discussion as you seek to be informed by God's word. And I want to look with you for help to Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And we're going to look to the sermon in five parts. So how many of you have those notebooks? I've got the five points to the sermon that you can outline. You can write it down right now. Here are the five points so you know exactly where we're going. First, we're going to look at God's plan to make himself known through his people, God's plan to make himself known through his people. Second point, Israel's failure, Israel's failure. Third point, Christ's victory, Christ's victory. Fourth point, the church's calling, the church's calling. And five, missions strategy, missions strategy. So first, God's plan to make himself known through his people. Now a little bit of context here as we look to Exodus 19. We're just dropping in the middle of the book of Exodus here. What has happened? How did we get here? Short context. God created the world good, holy, and perfect. God created it. And he created the earth and the whole universe with it as the context for which human beings, men and women, you and I, created in his own image, could fill the created physical earth with his glory and his image. That is God's design. That is his plan to glorify his name on the earth. However, the first man and woman decided to make their own plans for their existence and rather than look to God to tell them what is good and evil, They took the knowledge of good and evil into their own hands, and they rebelled against their maker. And through that first rebellion, sin utterly corrupted the earth, which is why we know a world that is both stunningly beautiful, because it was originally created good, and terrifyingly awful, because it has been corrupted by sin. Now fast forward a few thousand years and a few chapters in Genesis, In the midst of that downward spiral of corruption of sin on the earth, God speaks to a man in a pagan land from a pagan godless family, and his name is Abram. God made precious and amazing promises to Abram, effectively calling him out of that paganism and idolatry. And God promised Abram two really important things. And here are the two things he promised Abram. One, that he would make a mighty and blessed nation out of Abram. He'd make him into a a numerous peoples, a blessed nation. And second, that his offspring would bring unspeakable blessing to this world of curse. God was going to roll back curse through one of Abram's offspring. And all the nations of the world would, in fact, experience blessing through Abram's offspring. Fast forward again. Abram's descendants become a mighty and numerous people, numbering in the millions under slavery in Egypt. God delivers this nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants from Egypt, through the hand of a man named Moses. God leads Israel through Moses to a mountain, and that's where we're at in Exodus 19, and he's going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel, the promised descendants of Abraham, who are presumably that people who will be that mighty and blessed nation who will bring blessing from God to all the nations of the earth? And so in our passage, God calls Moses up into the mountain and he speaks to Moses. And this is where he's going to give Moses the Ten Commandments to give to Israel. But we're going to look at the very first thing that God speaks to Israel from this mountain on which he makes a covenant with the children of Abraham. So this is Exodus, I read 4 through 6, I'm going to back it up, a verse, read Exodus 19, 3 through 6. This is the first words of God to Moses, to the people of Israel, from this covenant mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell to the people of Israel, Now watch, watch these puzzle pieces come together from what we've seen so far in Scripture. God has promised Abraham that he would make him into a numerous nation that would bring blessing to every tribe, tongue, and people in this world of curse. And now Abraham's offspring have actually become this numerous nation. Part one of the promise fulfilled, right? He's become a numerous people. What about the rest of the promise? That nation bringing blessing to this world of curse. Well, check this out. God takes them out of Egypt, speaks to them from a mountain, and the first thing he says to them is, What? I'm going to give you a covenant. And if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my special people among all the other peoples on earth. You shall be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. What does this mean that they shall be a kingdom of priests? I think this is very important for understanding even the whole Bible. That God's call on Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. Remember, this is before there is even such thing as a priesthood among the Israelites. It's later in Exodus 19 that there's a such thing as the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. So there's no priest in Israel. First, before he, God even institutes priests in Israel, he institutes that Israel as a nation is a priest to the world. What does it mean? Well, we could unfold a big picture word study in biblical theology, a study, a theological study on what a priest is. And if we did, this is the conclusion we would come to. A priest is an authorized minister of God who mediates between God and man. An authorized minister of God who mediates between God and man. A priest does two things. One, he represents God to a people. Particularly in making known the way God is to be worshipped. He represents what God desires, what God requires. He shows God to a people. Second, he leads people to God in that worship. In essence, representing the people to God. Mediating between God and man. And God is telling Israel that just as a person is set apart from within a nation to be a priest to represent God to that people, so Israel is God's special nation among all the peoples of earth to represent God to the world. And as a kingdom that serves as God's priest to the world, Israel was to represent and real reveal God to the world and lead the people of the world to God in worship. So you see the pieces of the puzzle coming together, are they not? The promise to Abraham is taking form before our eyes. The world is under the curse of sin without God separated from god but god chose abraham to become this mighty nation that would bring blessing to this world under the curse of sin and we see here that the way god is going to bring blessing to the world is by revealing himself by making himself known through this nation through the nation of israel there were to be a whole kingdom that functioned as a priest between God and the world, mediating God's presence to the world, revealing to the world what God is like, who he is, making known his salvation, his covenant. In God's words, in Isaiah 49, 6, Israel was to be a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's God's plan for Israel. That's God, God's purpose For his people on earth. It's not merely an individual purpose. For individual followers of God. It's a corporate purpose. To make God known. Even to the ends of the earth. To serve as God's priesthood. To mediate his presence. To communities. All over the world. To bring God's blessing to this world of curse. What an incredible. Holy and weighty calling that is. Now, we must not get ahead of ourselves. Let's look closer at these verses. Exactly how was Israel to make God known on the earth? How were they to do it? How were they to function as God's priesthood? How would they accomplish this mission of being a blessing to the whole earth? What were they to do to accomplish this amazing and weighty and holy calling? This is really, really important. Look at Exodus 19, 5 and 6 again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's a condition. It's a condition. Then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Their mission, their priesthood mission, was dependent on their covenant, covenant-keeping obedience. And this makes sense, doesn't it? How could the earth know who God is through Israel if Israel just disregarded God altogether? If they didn't obey the covenant, if they didn't do what God said, how would the world know what God is like? So it's, it kind of goes without saying this is part of their mission. Their priesthood mission could only be accomplished that way. How, how would they serve in making God known in the world as a kingdom of priests if they disobeyed? Only as they are set apart and distinct from the world, living as God's people, in obedience to his covenant, could they properly serve this priesthood function. Do you all see that? Can I get some nods here? You all, it's, it's dependent on their obeying the covenant for them fulfilling this priesthood calling. So, to get us through, I need to hit fast forward again about 700 years. Hitting fast forward, we're 700 years forward now. Does Israel succeed in this mission? So, now we're in point two. Israel's failure. Even with a cursory reading of the Bible, we see that no, Israel does not obey the voice of God. That Israel is largely characterized by unbelief. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 they do not keep the covenant of God. Listen to what Jeremiah says. In Jeremiah chapter 11 verses 10 through 17. They have turned their back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers. They have gone after other gods speaking of Israel, to serve those other gods. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. And it goes on and on. In 2 Kings chapter 18, 12, we learn that Israel is taken over by Assyria because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, but transgressed the covenant. And the same thing happens to the southern tribes in 2 Kings 24 and 25 as they are under God's judgment in Babylon and their failure to obey the covenant. And so God says through Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, I reject you, Israel, from being a priest to me. Listen to that. God says, through Hosea, I reject my people from being that priest that I called them to be in Exodus 19. And yes, Israel's failure is bad. It's sad for Israel, right? They they were taken captivity by brutal nations of Assyria and Babylon. They were driven out of the land God had given to them. They endured the curses of God. It's all sad for them, right? Right? But more than this, if we've been paying attention, we see that Israel's failure is bad news for the world. It's sad for all of us. Israel was called to be this nation of blessing to the world. They were called to be the kingdom of priests by which blessing would come to this world of sin and death and curse. Israel was to be this priest of the world that mediated and restored to the world a covenant relationship with God Almighty. But Israel failed. And the world is left outside of God. Without a witness. Without a representative to who God is. We are left without a priest. But brothers and sisters... I'm going to share good news with you now. I just shared with you some very bad news, and here's some very good news. Here's the reason that we celebrate this morning. Here's the reason why we sing. We sing of Christ's victory. In the midst of this death, in the midst of this terror and madness and disobedience, there was yet one offspring of Abraham, one faithful Israelite, who would mediate God's presence to the world. Who would obey God's covenant and fulfill God's purpose for the nation of Israel. This child of Abraham is the man, Christ Jesus. Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says he has come to fulfill the old covenant. To do what was left undone by Israel. And that is exactly what he did. He embodied the old covenant law from the heart. He obeyed God in every respect. He lived in conformity to the Father. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Israel failed their 40 years of testing in the wilderness. Jesus succeeded in his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. And in and through his obedience to the Father, Jesus reveals God to us. John 14, 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He shows us what God is really like. He fulfills the priesthood role that Israel never fulfilled. The eternal Son of God came to the sin-cursed earth, to this world of sin and failure. He came into your world of failure to obey God on your behalf. And he shows us the Father. And he brings us to the Father, reconciling us to God through his own blood. This is the gospel. This is what we celebrate. Hebrews 4.14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Hebrews 7.26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy. Not when Israel was unholy. Innocent. When Israel was guilty. Unstained. When Israel was stained. Separated from sinners. When Israel was brought into the world of idolatry. And exalted above the heavens. Now what does this have to do with the church? What does this have to do with my introduction? And what does this have to do with the mission of the church? One of the most misunderstood things about the gospel in churches today. Is that in the gospel... Jesus not only brings deliverance from the penalty of sin and justification, in justification, but part of the promise of the gospel is that Jesus is delivering us from the power of sin and sanctification. He has created a new covenant people on earth who fulfill the priesthood function of Israel in Christ Jesus as God's chosen and precious people. So let's talk about God's the, the, God's calling on the church. The church is calling now. Point four here. Peter alludes to Exodus 19, verses four through six, and First Peter 2, five and nine. It was the scripture reading this morning. And it was rightly pointed out that that is all about holiness. It's all about a call to holiness so that the Gentiles would see. And so that the church wouldn't be put to shame. So that Gentiles would see, the unbelievers would see who God is. First Peter 2, 5 and 9, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, it says in verse 9 a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see this, how he's talking about Exodus 19? Peter is saying the church is the holy nation Is the kingdom of priests that God called Israel to be in Exodus 19 so that the church could fulfill that priesthood function and proclaim His excellencies being priests to the world? Consider the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. This is the promise in the midst of Israel's failure, in the midst of the destruction of the temple and God's presence being removed. This is the promise. God says through Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idolatry. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put in within you. Why? So that you can be justified and forgiven? Yes, but also, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. This is quoted all over the New Testament as being fulfilled in the church. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming in the midst of the destruction. This is the same Jeremiah that was speaking of all the destruction, the failure of, of, of Israel to the covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. This new covenant won't be broken. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people, my treasured people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me in this new covenant. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This new covenant is the covenant that Jesus says we celebrate around the Lord's table. He spoke of that new covenant. He said is inaugurated in his blood. Before he went off to the cross, he said this is the new covenant in my blood. That's what we're going to celebrate after this. This is the new covenant that Christ initiated with his blood. It gives us new hearts and enables us to walk. It's a covenant that will not be broken. A covenant of forgiveness, yes. But a covenant where obedience is enabled by the power of the Spirit. And in this new covenant, the church is enabled through Christ to fulfill Israel's priesthood purpose to the world. In Revelation 1.6, John the Revelator says that Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to our God. So now in the remaining minutes, that's all the theological background for the application to consider what this means for us, what it means for the church I want to urge you to consider the practical significance of these very weighty spiritual realities because not every organization that carries the name church is fulfilling their priesthood mission, even though we are promised that, we, that the new covenant will not be broken. Why is that? I fear that just like Israel, many so-called churches fail to be distinct from the world in any measure. There are perhaps good communities where friends are made and philanthropic efforts advanced. But in many churches, there is not supernaturally empowered obedience springing from the gospel. There's no transformation and deliverance from sin that authenticates the reality that the free gift of Christ's justification has been received by faith. And this relates directly to our mission strategy. Our final point on mission strategy. One, one thing I want us to consider first and foremost here. A so-called church of unregenerate people cannot possibly fulfill God's covenant missional purposes as God's priests on earth. Now, I don't want us to take that for granted. I want us to think about that. Our churches need to think about that. A church that lacks the practices of church membership and discipline, that fails to make any distinction between who is the church and who is the world, is not set apart as priests to God. There is no distinction. Really? Church membership and discipline? Those slow down the progress of evangelism and missions, don't they? They might even seem antithetical to the cause. They're so exclusive. They're so cumbersome. So mechanical. We don't want to be a cloistered group. We want to be the hands and feet of Christ. Let's stop playing church and let's get out of our communities being the hands and feet of Christ, right? I mean, I can relate to those sentiments. I want to be the hands and feet of Christ. The only thing is, unconverted people can't really be the hands and feet of Christ. They can be really nice and even sacrificial philanthropists. They can give lots of money to charity, even to the church. They can even care for the poor. But they can't be the living witness to Jesus that this world so desperately needs. So the practice, do not see any longer the practice of membership and church discipline as antithetical to the cause of evangelism and missions. It is absolutely essential to it. It is essential that the churches we are planting and the churches we are building, there is a distinction that we would be priests to the world representing who God is and what he is like all by grace. Secondly, Giving attention to holiness in our churches is not antithetical to missions and evangelism, evangelism, but it's essential to it. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Yes, so that no one would tempt you away from the living God, but also for the world's sake, we need to be holy. We're called to be holy, that we would be a witness to the world as a kingdom of priests to God on earth. Because we care about the lost, we care about the holiness of our churches. It is not hypocritical. It is not being self-righteous to care about the sanctification and the holiness of our churches. We are all sinners, struggling, saved by grace. We all have issues. I have sin that I can confess to you right now. I care about holiness in my life. I care about the holiness of Selwood Church. I care about the the holiness of the gathering church. And I hope you do too for the sake of the lost. The third point of application here that I want us to consider is that we must never forget the bigger picture about what God is doing through our redemption for the glory of his name. Here's where it gets dangerous. If we think that the end of things is just our holiness for our holiness, that that's where things terminate. Is on, on me just you know being brought wherever God wants to bring me? No, that's not the end game. God is accomplishing something through your sanctification that is much bigger than you. God is accomplishing a mission through your growth in Christ and through your attention to grow in him and to love him that is much bigger than you. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to the powers and principalities in heavenly places. God, through through what is happening here, and through a church growing in holiness, being taken from From the dumps. That's where I was taken. Okay, I I don't deserve to be here. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. And God by his grace revealed mercy to each one of us. And he has set us on a track to where our destiny is to be sin free. And through all of that, what God is doing through the church, his manifold wisdom is on display. It's magnificent. God is doing something marvelous. He says, let your light shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Your good works are for the glory of God among the nations. You are putting God's wisdom on display. So I ask, what kind of church do you want to be? What kind of people do you want to be? And I want to leave us with just thinking about this. In the cause of missions, in the cause of evangelism, which we should be fired up about, don't be afraid or ashamed to be God's people, to be his people, to be set apart for him, for the world's sake, for his glory. And know always that this is only possible through the gospel of Christ, which was the centerpiece of what we talk about. Jesus, that great high priest, the new covenant inaugurated by his blood. If you don't know what that's like, if you don't know what it's like to have that work in your heart, having a new heart, a new spirit that longs to obey God, that is set on that trajectory, that has been set free and forgiven, then then I would encourage you to talk with one of the elders here today. To talk with him and say, you know what? I, I, I've said the sinner's prayer. I've said, I, I've, I believe these things. But I don't know if this work has begun in my heart. Will you pray with me? I want the new covenant reality. I want that in my life. I want that for all of us. And know always that this is only possible through the gospel of Christ. Do not attempt to make this happen as Israel did. Apart from the enabling gift of God in Christ Jesus. He will forever be our high priest so that we might be his priests to the world. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this call. We thank you that we're not left like Israel with just the call to be something that you haven't enabled us to be, but that in Christ Jesus, you forgive us, you justify us, and you sanctify us. Accomplish your mission through us, cause us to be this kingdom of priests, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. We have the opportunity now to celebrate this new covenant meal that Jeff has been alluding to, and that is uh, the Lord's Supper. The table is open to all who have repented of their sins and have been baptized. If that describes you and you're visiting us from another congregation, then you're welcome to partake of the elements with us. If that doesn't describe you, then we would encourage you to not partake of this table, but to instead consider the words that were preached, consider what it would be to repent of your sins, and to put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You can come up row by row and take the elements back to your seat, and one of the elders will come up to lead us to partake corporately.